All right, so we've come to Psalm 130, a song for the depressed. So what do we sing when we are in the depths of despair? So will you pray with me as we start? Lord, we come to you this morning. We cry to you. We need you to come. We need you to open our eyes to understand. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us to learn to sing through the storms in our life, through the darkness. Help us to wait for you and to hope in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, have you ever seen an action movie where an unsuspecting victim goes across a section of ground and all of a sudden steps into uh, a piece of ground that is like the consistency of cold oatmeal and they begin to sink, you know, down and uh, struggling only makes it worse. And if this person is lucky, they can maybe grab onto a vine in the jungle that will keep them from, you know, sinking in the quicksand. But what we see is this victim just going glug, 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 right? And in the movies, we might be left with this pathetic image at the end of a hat just floating on the surface, right? And uh, apart from God, that is what we are. We are dead in the quicksand of our sins. Now, the starting point of this psalm is a lone cry from the depths, pleading for God to listen. This is one of the psalms of ascent, and as we dig into these eight short verses, I want you to notice a couple of things. We talked about the individual pronouns that you saw here. I cry, my soul, my voice, my pleas, I hope, I wait. And so after beginning with a very personal prayer, this lament, the lamenting the weight of his sin and the wonder of forgiveness, then he goes public. He calls out to his community, oh Israel, right, to ponder God's grace and God's mercy. He calls him to celebrate God's steadfast love and his redemption. And we also see the psalmist's attitude change. He begins in the depths of despair, and then it rises out of these depths of anguish and brokenness and hurt into this place where he has assurance. He's confident in his hope, in his deliverance, in his forgiveness that he has in um, God. And so he encourages all of Israel to join him in trusting in the Lord. And so this is a song for the depressed. With the Lord, there is forgiveness. So I will wait for him, I will hope in him and in his word, and I will trust his forgiveness, his steadfast love, and his plentiful redemption. Now the context here, Psalm 130 is number six of seven penitential psalms, and it's in book five. And as we learned in Psalm 118 a few weeks ago, each year the people of Israel would be instructed by the Lord to go to Jerusalem to celebrate, celebrate God's rescue of, their, of them from their slavery in Egypt. And as they approached the city, they would sing these songs of ascent, and they would literally be going up they would come out of the valley of Kidron and they would climb steadily upward in elevation to where the temple was at the top of the hill. And it's not like when we say we're going up north to Duluth for the weekend. <laughs> These people are, were actually climbing. And so what's happening here is you can see their attitude going from the depths of despair to confident hope, even as they're 
climbing these steps, going approaching the temple. Now, the, we don't know who the author is, but the audience here is the people of Israel. And the people of Israel had been repeatedly warned to forsake serving other gods. They were to humble them, themselves and they were to return to Yahweh. But instead, they stubbornly refused and then they were carried off to Babylon. Now, when they returned from exile in Babylon, Babylon, after God had delivered them, they listened to the law, they confessed their sins, and then they called to mind God's forgiveness. They remembered how God revealed himself to them as a God who was ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. So we begin in verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. So our crisis is despair. Now Psalm 69 gives us another really vivid recounting of this kind of despair. It talks about the floundering and the terror of drowning. And these are desperate situations that we find ourselves in where we cannot help ourselves. Self-help books will just not help in these kind of situations. Our cry in verse 2 is a cry for mercy. Oh, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So he cries out, Lord, listen to me. This points to his desperation. And then in verse 3, we see, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So we see here that our problem is not illness or suffering or anger or fear, fill in the blank. But the psalmist here is wrestling with his sin and the resulting guilt that is just suffocating him. Now the world's attention has been focused on our city this week. Well, actually for weeks or even a year. Many of us watched the trial. We saw the judge seated at the bench the defendant was charged with three counts of manslaughter and murder in the death of George Floyd. The prosecution brought witness after witness to give their testimony. And the judge and the jury listened very carefully to everything. And to help their memory, they could write down notes. They marked the iniquities. Now, I want you to imagine that you are the defendant. And the Lord is the judge. He's seated on his throne. And he is absolutely and he is perfectly just and righteous. Every sin, every iniquity, every transgression, every law you have broken is noted. It's marked. And the evidence against you is clear and overwhelming. Yesterday afternoon, we heard the verdict in the trial. What did we hear? Guilty, guilty, guilty. And what is God's verdict on us? Guilty, guilty, guilty. But he's not only our judge, because you and I have sinned against him. So he's also the victim. He's also the witness. And we are guilty as charged. There's no way out. We deserve the death sentence. Romans tells us. The judge, God, will not bargain with us for a lesser charge, and no one can stand before the Lord if he marks our sins. 
And Psalm 69, five says, "O oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Our sin is not hidden from God. So how can a holy and righteous God not mark iniquity? How can a perfectly holy and righteous God not count our sin? The answer is that he does mark iniquity. He does count sin. And he does require perfect holiness. But the good news here is in the pivotal word in this psalm. In verse 4, what's the first word? But. Charles Spurgeon called this the blessed but. He said, we are not hopeless with God. We can hope in the one who will rescue us in his time. We can come to him confessing our sins and pleading for pardon. There is no hope if God does not intercede. God marked our sin, and he punished it in Christ, who bore the wrath for us. Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. But with you there is forgiveness. With the Lord, our rescuer, we are fully pardoned. What a blessed hope we have. But again, we have to ask ourselves, how can this be? You may wonder about this broad, sweeping statement about forgiveness here in Psalms. In Romans 4, Paul mentioned David, who speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. On this side of the cross, we know that God is just and he is our justifier. Romans 3 says that God could not just let sins be swept under the rug. He would not be just if he did that. Justice demands payment for sin. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus paid that price. His blood was the price for our forgiveness. And God also requires perfect righteousness, which Jesus gives to us in what Martin Luther called the great exchange. When we are in Christ, he delights to give us his righteousness. In fact, the Bible says he clothes us with his righteousness. And that is our only hope. So with the Lord, there is forgiveness. So what will be the result in our lives? It says here that you may be feared. And at first, this might sound weird. If I am forgiven, that means I don't need to fear God and his wrath, right? Or at least I'll fear him less, not more. Well, the meaning of this word feared, as we talked about, is reverence. So imagine this immense debt of sin that has been forgiven. Last week we learned in Psalm 103 that we are to bless the Lord, the one who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your, your youth is renewed like the eagles. 
We do not presume upon the Lord's forgiveness, but instead we stand in awe of his pardoning grace. And we have that sweet relationship that we now have with our forgiver, our redeemer. Now back in the courtroom, we heard the verdict, guilty. And the sentence, the wages of sin is death. But God, blessed but, is what Spurgeon said. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5, verse 8 through 10. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So our death sentence was taken on by the judge's one and only son. So he's not the judge only. He's also our advocate. Because of Jesus, he declares us not guilty. For he has credited our sin against Jesus. And Jesus' righteousness is credited to us. So he gives us his unexpected and undeserved pardon. And Jesus takes our death sentence. So our sin is cast into the depth of the sea as far as the east is from the west. And because of Jesus, he no longer remembers those sins or marks them, marks our iniquities. So we will not be flippant. We will not take for granted the price that he paid for our salvation. No, those of us who are rooted and grounded in Christ who are justified, who have experienced his forgiveness, we will stand in awe and reverence for him. We will be humbled and overwhelmed by God's mercy, and we will plead for more and more grace to become more and more like him so that that fruit will be visible in our lives. So forgiveness is the root, and out of that flows the fruit in our lives, that fruit of holiness, that fruit of the fear of the Lord. This is not to say that we will never sin, right? That's not the case. But if you're truly in Christ, your posture will be a broken-hearted humbleness when you sin, and you will quickly turn away from that sin, and you will turn to the Lord for more grace. With the Lord there is forgiveness, so I will fear him, I will wait for him, I will hope in him and in his word, and I will trust his steadfast love, his forgiveness, and his plentiful redemption. So we come to verses 5 and 6, our hope. I wait for the Lord. I hope in his word. That is his promises. It is the Lord himself that we long for, not just escape from the punishment that we deserve. And our hope is in his word, in his promises. The old song goes, standing on the promises that cannot fail, when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God I shall prevail, standing on the promises of God. Notice the tense here. I wait for the Lord. I hope in his word and in his, prom and in his promises. This is not describing a one-time thing that we do in the past. This is an ongoing action. You wake up in the morning, you say, I am going to wait for the Lord. I am going to hope in the Lord. I'm going to hope in his word. And how are we to wait? We are to wait more 
than a watchman for the morning. Now this is not a familiar term to us in this day when we have video monitors and ring doorbells that send us notifications that somebody is at our door. But back in the day, there was a watchtower and there was a watchman who would observe everything that was going on, especially in the night, watching for people that were passing by, whoever would approach and come near. He would look for everything his eye could see and diligently make note of it until the morning would come. And although the watchman would observe everything, in this context, it's not watching against a danger or a harmful intrusion, but he's watching for those first rays of light in the morning. So if we wait for the Lord more than a watchman, we wait in times of darkness, in times of pain, in times of hurt, and then we look for trust to see how God will answer in the morning. Psalm 5.3 says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and I watch. And Isaiah 33.2 says, O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning and our salvation in the time of trouble. So we are to wait and hope eagerly and expectantly for the morning. Sometimes we experience those mornings here and now and sometimes we have extended nights of suffering and waiting, but we wait with the confidence that the Lord is good, he is right, and he is just in all of his ways and in all of his timing. So what do we as believers cling to? We cling to the Lord, we cling to his promises, and his promises are yes and amen in Jesus. And his character does not change. He is as forgiving now as he was in the psalmist's time, and he will always be our forgiving God. So we can cling to this hope. It is secure. So with the Lord, there is forgiveness. So I will wait for him. I will hope in him and his word and trust his forgiveness, his steadfast love, and his plentiful redemption. Now look at one more little phrase with me. But with the Lord. Did you notice how many times that was repeated? With the Lord. Go ahead and circle that. Number one, with the Lord there is forgiveness. Over and over the Bible declares that God is forgiving. We see this in verse four. When God forgives, he no longer remembers our sin. He will not hold those sins against us. He forgets them. And this is not because he's suffering uh, memory loss. Instead, it highlights the strength of his mercy and his grace. He knows all of our sins, all the sins we have committed and all the things that we have left undone. But when we are in Christ, it's as if we have only ever been as righteous as Christ. So when God forgets, it's intentional mercy. It's not a mistake. And if we are redeemed, we will walk in joyful reverence and have a determination to be holy as he is holy. Our lives will be marked by that expectant waiting for the Lord and trusting in him alone. Now with the Lord, there is also steadfast love. This word we've seen before in the Psalms, this is a covenant love, hesed, and it's used 240 times in the Old Testament, especially common in the Psalms. And it can be translated mercy or grace or loving kindness, and it refers to this covenant love that God has that has like three parts to it. 
there's strength, there's this steadfastness or loyalty, and there's love. Love it by itself can be mushy and sentimental. That's not God's love. Strength or steadfastness can, can suggest keeping an obligation or a promise in a grudging way even, but that's not God. We need to keep all three parts of this in mind to understand the richness of God's hesed, steadfast love. His love is generous. It's loyal. It's merciful. It's his amazing grace. And I was thinking about another old song that says that I was sinking deep in sin, far from that peaceful shore, right? Very deeply stained within. I was sinking to rise no more, like out of the depths in the psalm. But the master of the sea, he heard my despairing cry, and from the waters lifted me, now safe am I. You know the chorus? Love lifted me, love lifted me. Okay, that is God's hesed love that lifted me. When nothing else could help us, it's God's love that lifted us up. And this love is lavishly demonstrated in Jesus, who gave his life for us. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This love is unfailing. Nothing can separate us from this love, Romans 8 says. And he will never leave us or forsake us, says Hebrews 13. And number three, with him is plentiful redemption. We see this in verse 7. Plentiful means abundant, great, multiplied increase. And this word redemption here is ransom. This is used rarely in the Bible, but it, it, it has that meaning about God buying us back. And we think of God's past work of redeeming Israel, how he delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And after exile, he redeemed them from their enemies, Babylon. And we think of individual redemption. We think of um, David and Abraham and Jeremiah and the psalmist and how they called God their redeemer. And we also think of God's future promises to us. He will redeem us is the promise here. Um, one argument for the deliverance is also the character of God. We have hope due to God's steadfast love and compassion, for he is merciful and gracious, and that endures forever. And as Pastor Sam reminded us this week, God is not done yet. The story of redemption is continuing as he redeems us and redeems others that we share that good news with. All right, the psalmist now calls others to join him in hoping in God. And why is that? Because he has wrestled with hopelessness and heartache and guilt and brokenness, and he has learned the secret of waiting for the Lord and that with him there is forgiveness, there is steadfast love, and there is plentiful redemption. God is sovereign. God is good. He is near to the brokenhearted. And he will bring perfect justice, either here and now or ultimately later. And he is at work to call us to look to him. So the psalmist erupts in praise. Oh, Israel, he is faithful. He will forgive. Come, taste and see. The Lord is good. Hope in him. Hope in his word. So we began in verse 1, without of the depths, the psalmist crying, 
out of despair and guilt, and now nothing could be higher. The glories of redemption shine brightly against this background of the darkness of verse 1. So we've seen the incredible hope that we have in God, our faithful forgiver, our steadfast lover, our redeemer. Did you notice the word all in verse 8? And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. All. There is no depth of our sin from which he is not able to save us. Amy Carmichael said, our waters are shallow because his were deep. Our waters are shallow because his are deep. So are you sinking in the depths of despair over your sin? Like quicksand? The good news is, but God. The Apostle Paul, who considered himself the chief of sinners, wrote this in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and following. He said, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. So I hope that you are rejoicing in the depths of God's grace and mercy toward you. If you are in Christ through faith, instead of those waves of despair and that glug, glug, glug of sinking in quicksand, you have wave after wave of mercy coming to you through Christ. His mercies are new every morning, and we don't keep this good news to ourselves, do we? Just as the psalmist exclaimed, Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Pray for opportunities to share this, to say to a neighbor, Oh, neighbor, hope in the Lord. Oh, sister, wait for the Lord. Hope in him. His promises are sure. His character is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So will you turn with me to Romans 11? I'd like to conclude this. This is where Paul bursts into praise for God's amazing grace to us. And I remember years ago when Pastor John Piper was in the book of Romans, and I happened to be in the service for a message where he spent a great deal of time just talking about this little word, oh. Oh, oh, the depths of the riches, okay? So let's start in verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. And then jump to verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy, right? And then jump down again. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him 
are all things. To him be the glory forever. Will you pray with me? Oh Lord, I pray that you would help us to hope in your word. Help us to wait with confident expectation that you are on your throne and you are our perfect, just judge. And you are our merciful redeemer. May we go to our knees often to pray for our neighbors, for our communities, for our church, and for our cities. God, you are not done with us yet. May we just look to you. May we wait for you. Because we learned this week that with you there is forgiveness. With you there is steadfast love. With you there is plentiful redemption. So may we walk in this truth. And may we hope and may we be eager and ready to share this good news in Psalm 130. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.